just thinking about like how do you make a movement practice a research practice you know and mm-hmm. also and this is something i think that came up in the class is how can you use these movement practices to maybe help decolonize some of the ways that we have come into the academy because for me it was always either or it's like either you're being like the dancer version of you or you're being the real scholar Welcome to episode two of the Camera Archives podcast. I'm your host, Ajane Truss, a PhD student in the Annenberg School for Communication at UPenn. The Camera Archives podcast is a project of the Collective for the Advancement of Multimodal Research Arts, or CAMERA, at the University of Pennsylvania. It chronicles a range of exciting multimodal projects happening in and around CAMERA. This first season of the Camera Archives podcast is titled Black Women in Motion. We're exploring movement and embodiment as methodology and pedagogy in Black women's institutional and organizational leadership, research, and personal practices. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Dr. Christina Knight. Christina is an assistant professor of visual studies at Haverford College, as well as a director of the visual studies program. Here, her work examines the connection between embodied practices and identity, the relationship between race and the visual field, and the queer imaginary. Additionally, she is the director of Nightworks Dance Theater, which she co-founded with her sister, Jessie Knight, in 2013. In fall of 2020, Christina was also a visiting fellow at Penn's Center for Experimental Ethnography, where she taught a course called Black Speculative Futures. Full transparency, I was in her class, and I found Christina's work and the course to be really inspiring, um, which is a part of why I chose to interview her for this series. We began the conversation by talking about Nightworks and how it started. So Nightworks Dance Theater is uh, mainly my sister and myself. Um, We decided around 2013 that we wanted to start working together. You know, I um, was coming off of grad school and Jessie had just come off of a professional dance career when um, she was dancing in Denver. And the two of us decided um, that not only did we have something that we wanted to kind of work through together, Um, We also um, wanted to kind of fill a space um, just in terms of the dance scene, certainly in North Carolina where Jesse is located, where there was a lot of um, really beautiful work happening, but really on the level of abstraction. And so um, we wanted to start telling stories that kind of related to our own life and upbringing coming up as two kind of interracial military brats in North Carolina. It's a very strange kind of circuitous story. But then also just um, wanting to add a kind of little bit of diversity, I guess, to the kind of ways that stories were being told in modern dance. Like both of us have been trained um, in modern dance and there's this kind of um, this push to not being particularly personal um, with your stories. Um, And so not not that that's totalizing. Of course, there are exceptions. Um, But we wanted to really like join in and, and tell a little bit about our experiences Um, And also just be together as sisters, you know, because we've since basically I left for college when I was 18, we've been living in separate places. So this is one of those things that's helped us kind of come together as sisters, too. Another piece of this, um, which I know, you know, because you've been in class with Jesse and I, is that um, part of our impulse is always um, not just to create work, but also to create community. So there was this moment Um, in the 2010s where both of us were like, how is it that we're so linked in in terms of like professional networks? We have so many Facebook friends and 
you know, we just, but we were like, we don't have a meaningful, you know, crew of people essentially. (laughs) And we were like, there's no way to create art for that community without first thinking about like, who is this community? Are we in conversation Mm. with these folks to make sure that the thing that we're making is actually the thing that those folks want? You know, Mm. so a big part of our art making process really has been about collaborators, you know, and it's always been very much about whatever place we're making the art in, really being in conversation with that to make sure that we're not just making stuff for the sake of making stuff, or making stuff um, to try to convince people that this is like the hot item of the season. So that's right. kind of that's just an overview um, of kind of what we're doing with Nightworks. But um, I'm sure if you have like other questions just about the actual stuff that we've been making for the past few years, I'm happy to answer that too. Yeah, yeah. So I think first you mentioned like deciding who that like who was your community and like kind of solidifying that. So who. I guess in the abstract, like not asking for like individual names or anything like that, but who did you find was that community? Like was that creative community for you two? And and how did that start to like come together? That is a great question. I think there's a kind of capacious and expansive answer. So I think- I love capacious and expansive. (laughs) (laughs) You're an academic for real. Um, So I think part of that was just finding um, other scholars, you know, personally, other scholars that were interested in similar issues Um, finding other creative artists, um, not necessarily dance artists, but people doing film, people doing music um, that had a sort of similar inclination to thinking about how are we making a more just world? Um, But then also there's a spiritual piece where it was just a lot of people around us, um, people that we were connected with, um, were just sort of um, becoming trained in the intuitive arts, let's say. So people um, becoming... Um, invested in Ifa or in the Haitian sort of tradition, um, people really coming into their own spirit-wise, um, being in conversation with those folks has really helped us think about like, what is this work if it's ancestral work? Um, what does it mean to be in conversation with other people doing ancestral work? Um, because it started to feel like it wasn't just that we wanted to like be politically on the right side of things. It's like, we really think that art making can make another world possible. Um, And what we also think is that that is necessarily a collectivist activity. There's no way to kind of do that on your own and just hope that that's the right thing. You need people holding you accountable and you need to be in dialogue with other folks. Absolutely. Why do you think movement specifically? So that's kind of what obviously this like series is getting at. But what why do you think movement specifically is important to a spiritual practice? Or what do you think comes about like when like why is embodiment (laughs) itself important? I think it's a great question. And I think like, I'll say what I think, but I also find that my relationship to movement um, has been changing over time too, you know? So being Mm -hmm. trained, you know, in sort of classical ballet or modern, it gives you one kind of access to your body. Um, In graduate school, um, I sustained an injury to my knee. And so when I got, um, when I sort of done physical therapy and got, better, I found that there were certain kinds of dance practices that were easier on the body. Um, Mm -hmm. So for instance, diasporic practices tend to be more sort of like regular. So like you'll do something to one side, you do something to the other side. And so that's how I got into these kinds of practices. And I'm saying all of that to say that sometimes these things are kind of a happy accident, um, (laughs) that there are these forms that are there Um, that you may or may not have an ancestral relationship to. And then all of a sudden you start doing them and they do something to you by way of you, through you. So for instance, 
In graduate school, I'm writing about all these art practices that engage the history of slavery. And then all of a sudden in Haitian folkloric class, I'm dancing these dances that sort of evoke that history too. And all of a sudden my dream space changes, you know? So I start dreaming about these loas, you know? And so I guess one of the ways of answering your question is that, and this is kind of magical, that there are forms that come out of the diaspora that hold memory and tradition and tapping into them opens you up to other ways of knowing. So then I guess over the next few however many years, I've been trying to think about how to integrate that into sort of the work that I'm doing in the academy, which I think, you know, camera folks are super interested in, Deb is super interested in you, I know. How do you start engaging these, not just as technologies or practices or techniques, of course, because you can learn all these things through technical kind of, you know, practices, but just thinking about like, how do you make a movement practice a research practice, you know? And Mm -hmm. also, and this is something I think that came up in the class is how can you use these movement practices to maybe help decolonize some of the ways that we have come into the academy, because for me, it was always either or. It's like either you're being like the dancer version of you or you're being the real scholar, you know? And it's just like I found, particularly in graduate school, that I was just living in this incredibly disembodied way, feeling really alienated from how my body was working, feeling really injured. You know, I got an ulcer like my first year in graduate school, which was just like I had this conversation with this pharmacist who was just like, he was like, you're taking like, you know, enough ulcer medicine for like an old man, like someone who was like in their 80s. So he was like, he was like, this is none of my business, but you might want to think about, (laughs) you know, some life changes, changes, right? And so I think like, you know, like all jokes aside, like I really did need to think about some life changes and needed to think about why is it that I feel like what I'm doing is actually breaking down or destroying my body instead of sort of supporting the work that I want to do. And so I think that that's, that's the journey that I'm on. It's like the reason I'm answering it in all these different ways is just because I haven't settled on necessarily one particular kind of message that dance is, is offering me or that movement is offering me. But I think it's an open question. What are these ways that tapping into the body, tapping into just how you move through space, attending to that in more particular ways, what kind of knowledge can that open up? During her time as a Center for Experimental Ethnography fellow, Christina also worked on the Nightworks short film, Doomsday, Field Notes. This piece is a part of a trilogy about the idea of the end of the world. So I guess just to sum it up, I mean, we've been invested in exploring the idea of the end of the world for many years. And how that kind of has manifested is a trilogy, basically. Um, The first piece of which uh, was a piece called Eurydice Descended, which we premiered in North Carolina Um, in 2015. And that was a retelling of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth that was really invested in recentering Eurydice. So instead of making her a kind of lost love object, it was about kind of reclaiming in the way that a lot of feminist folks have. But then we got to thinking just about wanting a kind of dramatic structure to talk about something else, which is like, what is our relationship personally to death and the underworld? And then what is the sort of like relationship that black folks, colonized folks, indigenous folks, and frankly, all marginalized folks, what is our relationship to the idea of the underworld, the dead, um, and also tragedy, 
so, you know, Orpheus and Eurydice is a tragedy. It's like, it's a double tragedy, actually, because it starts with a wedding that turns into a funeral that turns into another loss, you know, at the end. And so we were just thinking, like, as a dramatic structure, what does it do for people of color to sort of, like, keep revisiting tragedy, like, over and over again? Um, and one of the through lines, I think, that comes up in our work really is, like, you know, if, for instance blackness emerges on the middle passage right it emerges on slave ships then one of the ways that we are constantly sort of um, thinking about blackness is as sort of being connected to dispossession you know and so that's a sort of strain in black studies too not just our work but the idea that blackness is about a kind of foreclosure Um, and so in some ways to invoke again and again what blackness is, is to invoke that kind of foreclosure. And so I think we were trying to just explore that by way of this kind of mythic scaffolding. Because in some ways we just, we had Eurydice wake up in the city of the dead and just have to ask, well, how did I get here? You know, and what is this place? And what, you know, is it a scary place or is it a place where I can sort of finally make some peace with what my life was, but also like who the dead are, how they support the living, etc. So that was our first piece. Um, our second piece, we didn't know we were going to make a tragedy. We didn't, sorry, not tragedy. We didn't know we were going to make a trilogy. Interesting slip, Dr. Freud. Um, anyways, we didn't know. Um, but one day I just sort of woke up and I said, you know, from a dream and said, spectacular black death. And my sister was like, no, <laughs> now we have to make another piece about the dead, you know, or about tragedy, you know. Um, but I was living in Maine at the time. And so, um, was surrounded by the ocean. It was a very quiet place. It's a very white place. Um, but it seemed like an opportunity to make a different kind of piece. And so um, we decided to do the site-specific work on this island um, called Fort Gorgeous, just off the coast of Maine. And we made everyone get into a boat to go out to this fort. Um, and it's really noisy and really chaotic. But then when you get inside, it's super quiet. All you hear is the ocean waves. Um, and this piece was sort of um, an homage to Yemaya. So in the Yoruba tradition, she's the great mother. And so at that moment, all this kind of Black Lives Matter stuff was bubbling up. This was 2016. And so we wanted to make a piece about Black Lives Matter without only making it about Black Lives Matter. And so sort of in the same vein of like, you know, this idea of the end of the world, we asked these women of color in our life, um, if this is the end of the world, how are you using your skills? your ideas, your voice to make a new world. Because for me, it's like, you see these images of these black mothers like holding up pictures of their sons, you know, who've been murdered by the police. But there's something else about them that some that the those interviews don't capture, which is that these women just by like continuing to live and continuing to sort of be in dialogue with the community, like they're also trying to like imagine a speculative future in which this is impossible, you know? And so... I was like, okay, they're bearers of tragedies, sure, but they're also bearers of utopia. And so we had these women in our life record themselves talking about how they're using their skills to make a new world, and we, we scored the piece with that. And so that was a really beautiful um, experience, and it felt like an experience where we were being held by our community, um, which was really nice, too, and another through line of our work. Um, and then... Um, shortly after I moved to Philadelphia and started having all these dreams about the end of the world, um, which is a lot, you know, um, but a lot of times I feel like my work is really much like our work, I should say, is very in dialogue with place. And so at that time I was like, okay, 
what does Philly want me to make? You know, what, what is the city asking me to make? You know, and I always tell this story that like in the first couple of weeks of being in Philadelphia, I went downtown and there was a woman in the street screaming, Philadelphia is doomed. Philadelphia is doomed. And I was just like, yo, <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this? That's it. You know, I was like, there's something about the city, you know, um, that understands the idea of doomsday. There's something about a city that has these like infrastructure problems and has people living in like the deepest level of poverty right alongside people with this, you know, this mainline wealth. There's something about Philadelphia and black folks in Philadelphia that has something to say to everyone else in this country as we're on the cusp of disaster, you know? And at that time it was like, you know, 2016. So it was right before Trump was about to be elected. So there was this kind of cloud, you know, hanging over. And so that was the sort of subtext, but also, you know, Jesse and I started having conversations about the fact that I was dreaming about the end of the world. And that's what our dad used to do too. Like he was a Vietnam vet and I think just had a very scary dream landscape. And I should say my late father. Um, And so we started thinking about, you know, how we kind of inherited some of the trauma um, and then again, always trying to telescope out to sort of like blackness more broadly. Um, and to think like how have we all inherited some trauma and how can we like maybe tap into some bodily practices to get back to what you said earlier, um, to maybe start getting into some healing, some somatics, like, can we use this practice as a way to work through some of our trauma and not just like repeat it over and over again. And it's like, again, you know, I work you know, thinking about the relationship between contemporary art and performance and slavery. And so a long time ago, Ken Whisker at Duke Press said, you know, when he heard the kind of spiel of what my project is, he was like, right. He's like, I hear you saying that, you know, for a long time, like blackness has been tethered to dispossession. And he was like, what I also hear you saying is like, how do we get off this ship? You know, how do we get off this ship? And I've just really held on to that, like both in my, I guess, academic practice and then also in this artistic practice where we're like honestly doomsday is a it's a work where we're trying to get off this ship in some ways you know Mm -hmm. and so like I guess just like in terms of like what the actual performance piece is going to be versus like what doomsday field notes was I mean there's a little bit of a difference um when it's fully realized doomsday is going to be a doomsday church um you know, a black feminist doomsday church. Um, and it's going to be a space of healing. Um, it's going to have a kind of punk politics. It's very DIY. It's very collectivist. The idea is that the doomsday church can kind of be built up, pop up anywhere in a day or two, you know, everyone's welcome. It's not high production values. And the idea is that kind of coming out of the Combahee river collective that like, if black women were free, we would all be free. You know, so in our doomsday church, like black women and femmes run the show, you know, black women and femmes are the only ones that can embody our deities, you know, Um, and they're the ones kind of blessing everyone um, at the end of the service, because the idea is that, you know, we're moving from a kind of moment of twilight, which is where we are now, into a kind of coming darkness. And I don't mean that necessarily in a totally apocalyptic way. But rather that we're, but maybe, yeah, you know, I mean, when I think about, 
you know, things like climate grief, when I think about the affective life of climate grief, for instance, or, you know, just like what it means to be in, in this moment of COVID denial, you know, we're still in this moment where it's like these numbers are going up and, you know, because of the economics of our moment, we have to pretend like it's not happening. Um, it feels like there's a kind of coming darkness, but through this black feminist lens, there's this idea that we can maybe learn to see in the dark. Diving more specifically into the Doomsday Field Notes short film, the piece is a fictional work documenting a mysterious set of ritual practices discovered by an anthropologist from the future. In the film, fragments of dance, glimpses of community building, and invocations of a black feminist writing reveal a Doomsday church invested in charting a black future. Here's a quick clip from the piece, then you'll hear Christina talk more about the work. Analysis. Why the organizers chose a rooftop for the ritual is unclear. Equally unclear is whom the ritual is for. Audience members do not appear in the frame. Perhaps the video was for online distribution? Additionally, why the color palette of red and black? Elements of the rituals resemble African diasporic spiritual practices, from the Yoruba particularly, as well as its offshoots in Brazil and Cuba. But the ritual itself seems piecemeal, fashioned from disparate elements. Most of all, I wonder about the decision to film amidst the social unrest of that time. Though documentation of the historical period is uneven, given what happened shortly afterwards, I can't help but to wonder, did this woman feel safe? Did she choose the rooftop for its obscurity or for its aesthetics? Or did she simply need access to open sky? And so Doomsday Field Notes was an opportunity, I guess, when we couldn't get together, when we couldn't have that magic of live performance, um, to imagine like, okay, you know, our ancestors have been up against much worse than that. You know, um, let's make a film. You know, film is like necessarily more deterritorialized. You know, we had cinematographers working in Brooklyn, North Carolina. Our editor was in Philly. Um, and then we had you guys. Like, we were working with you guys in Black Speculative Futures, this class of pen. Um, and we were seeing you on screens every day already. And so it was just kind of like, is this an ideal world? No, it's not an ideal world. But maybe it's never been an ideal world for people of color in this country anyways. And so we're going to make our shit. You know, we're going to make our work. Um, and we're going to make it together. Um, and so that's how that piece kind of came into being. Literally, I think in August of last year, so almost a full year ago, we were just like, what are we going to do? We can't get together. You know, we didn't know who you guys were going to be. We didn't know you were going to be kind of magical um, and genius. <laughs> um, but luckily you were, and it all came together. Um, and in addition, I guess, and I guess this is relevant to the people listening to this podcast, like, it was an opportunity to also to think about anthropology. It was an opportunity to think about the sort of colonial legacies of that um, and how that relates to a black feminist tradition, particularly a pin, um, you know, that there are several folks kind of working in this ethnographic tradition, trying to find other ways um, to address these histories, you know. And so that's why we had this premise that this like anthropologist from the future is like speaking to us as audience members and sort of letting us know that the field, the world, everything arrives at a different place 50 years from now. And it doesn't give you all the information on how to get from here to there, you know, but it sort of gives you these little bits of information 
um, that there's in fact maybe more porousness between the past and the future and the present than we'd like to admit, or maybe that we have the tools to understand. So it's just a kind of invitation to think differently about that. No, I think it's, it was really interesting because I think the, the piece also that I came up with at, you know, after having taken the class or having done all of that work together, it has kind of, I guess, like a similar feeling in that it's about the end of the world <laughs> and it's about more or less, a, you know, um, the end of the world as dictated by climate change and capitalism um, or the climate crisis because it's not change anymore. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but it's also inherently kind of hopeful because it says that there's something after that. There's something more and maybe something greater that we can achieve beyond that. It just, that itself seems so, I don't know, it seems, it's, it's scary, you know, because it, I guess the question is like, what if there isn't? But I don't know. I, I felt like Doomsday Field Notes like assumed that there was, um, which I don't know. I don't know. I, I, there's like so much, I have so many mixed emotions about that, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And I think like, I think the thing that sticks with me is that like none of us chose to be born during this time, you know, and all of us are just here. And it's just like, we have to get up every day and look at the news and we have to get up every day and look at the weather channel. Although that's a choice. I should just stop. But it's just like, you know, I was just in LA for a couple of weeks and it's just like, everything's drying up and setting on fire and here everything's just like floods. Like literally there was one day where I was looking at the news and like here in Washington Heights, there was all this like flooding in the subway. And I saw people like wading through, like just people just wading through, you know? And then on the West coast, it's just like everything is drying up and it just feels like we have to develop some ways of thinking about what the next, what the next world would look like. Um, and it's up to us. And so I think there's something about this speculative work that allows us to do that um, in more creative ways than necessarily, I don't know, the kind of political conversations that we've been having, um, which are so polarized and feel like there isn't any room to move. You know, it's like, I think mm. it's still super essential, obviously, to be invested politically and to vote and to, you know, but I think there's some other register that we have to sort of get into where we can imagine something otherwise. And I think black feminists forever have been saying that, you know, that like they've been writing like, you know, our Octavia Butlers, you know, um, our NK Jemisons have been saying like, we, we need to exercise this muscle that is the radical imagination. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Camera Archives podcast. You can follow more of Camera's work on Twitter and Instagram at CameraPen. That's C-A-M-R-A-P-E-N-N. This episode was produced and edited by me, Ajane Truss, and our music is Smooth Day by Ketza, available at freemusicarchive.com. Our website is camerapen.org, and you can listen to the next episode of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud.